The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, it's Jesse. Last month, I was supposed to go to South by Southwest. I was going to be doing a ton of interviews for Hello Monday, and one of the ones I was most excited about was this interview with this writer and film director, Lulu Wong. And Lulu's having her moment. She wrote and directed The Farewell. Maybe you saw it. It was this movie about a Chinese family. The grandma had cancer. Her family decided not to tell her, but then they all wanted to see her. So they concocted this elaborate story about how one of the grandkids was going to get married so they'd all have an excuse to get together in China. But what the movie was really about was how the granddaughter, who is an artist living in New York, how she made her peace with this weird kind of lie. Anyhow, it cleaned up at the awards this year, the Globes, Critics' Choice Awards, Independent Spirit Awards, and we were going to talk about all of that at South by Southwest. And then there was no South by Southwest. And we were both so busy in the weeks that followed that we shelved the conversation. But then I saw that Lulu had started using her Twitter account to ask for donations of masks and personal protection equipment. She was literally willing to drive all over LA to pick it up and bring it to the hospital. So I called her. So Lulu, I want to start by asking if everyone in your family is okay and where you are. I am in Los Angeles right now, quarantined with my partner, Barry Jenkins, um, and uh, everybody's okay, you know, so far. Um, everyone uh, is safe. Uh, my brother lost his job. He's a chef, and so I think uh, the restaurant industry is really um, taking a huge hit. But, you know, aside from that, everybody is healthy so far. I understand, Lulu, that you've actually been very involved in... Um in trying to lend support and be in service during this time. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, have social media like a lot of people do and uh, often question why I have social media and often uh, threaten to get off of it. And um, it can often be toxic. But in this particular situation um, where a friend of mine, her sister is an ER doctor, um, and uh, the hospital asked all of the healthcare workers to procure their own PPE, uh, personal protection equipment, uh, which is pretty outrageous, you know, to uh, be at the front lines of um, this emergency and putting their health at risk, their lives at risk, and uh, feeling very alone in having to just have the basic resources to protect themselves. So my friend asked me to help amplify the message of the call for PPE. And that, you know, threw me into um, just sorting through messages, trying to figure out how to create a system where we can actually get people who have these uh, supplies, whether it's N95 masks, surgical masks, gloves, shoe protectors, um, et cetera, you know, how to get them to the people who need them. So how does one expect that doctors and nurses are going to find protection, particularly right now? I don't know what the hospitals are thinking. I mean, what I heard, and I'm not an expert, I just have to say, you know, because I, I, I don't work in that industry, but my friends who do have told me that they were being told not to wear masks 
you know, a lot of the executives uh, working at the hospital um, were discouraging nurses and doctors from wearing the N95 masks unless they were certain that they were treating a COVID patient. Now, with the lack of testing as well, it's pretty impossible to know who's got COVID and who doesn't. If somebody comes in um, to be treated for uh, flu-like symptoms or otherwise, you just don't know what you're getting yourself into. And so they felt like they couldn't trust um, the leaders. Uh, and a lot of them, are the you know, the executives are administrative people, are, are working at a corporate level. There's just not enough. That is overwhelming to think about. It's sort of inspiring to think that there might be people who just have one or two extra masks in their earthquake kit and are willing to give them up right now. Because it's kind of a scary moment to give something like that up. It's also a scary moment not to give it up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just really sad, too, because when we um, put the call out and we got a bunch of these donations uh, um, for, you know, certain L.A. hospitals, I got so many messages from people all over the country saying, I saw what you did. Can you help us, too? And it was just really sad because there's no way for us to help all of these people. That's an overwhelming feeling right now, right? It's like, how do you figure out how to make your contribution when you know it's, it pales in terms of what's needed? Yes, absolutely. You can get involved by following Lulu Wong on Twitter. You know, next week we're launching a special two-part series on artists and performers. I'm thinking about it as our attempt to highlight the lost art of 2020. There were so many amazing musicians and creative people and artists who just didn't get their big debut. Maybe they didn't get to perform at all. This is trouble for their business. It's trouble for their art. It's trouble for all of us. So I asked Lulu to think a bit about how the virus's impact on her work and the larger film community would play out. I'm really fortunate because the projects I was working on have all been in development stage. Uh, so I have a feature that I'm developing with Big Beach, the producers who made The Farewell. Um, and it's called Children of the New World. And uh, it's adapted from a short story. Uh, and then I have a TV series with Amazon and Nicole Kidman called Expats. Um, so I was in the writer's room for that when all of this happened. Um, and so now we're doing our writer's room remotely and writing our own episodes. Um, I also have another TV series called Family Meal that we were starting to put together a writer's room for that I was going to go into this summer. Um, but, you know, all of it is writing. And so the the fortunate thing is that I can still do it from home. It's not the same as being in person, of course, Um a writer's room is where, you know, me and other writers get together every day and we're brainstorming and we're putting um, beats of the story up on a whiteboard. And so, of course, it's not quite the same to do it remotely, but at least we're still able to move the projects forward. Are you able to, I guess, replicate that chemistry? Does it change? It does change. It changes a lot, you know, and it's one of the things I love about film is the collaboration. I love being on set. I love the, it's my first writer's room. I've never worked in television before, but it's been really eye-opening because it is so wonderful to be in a room together, to order lunch together, um, 
we were in an office space and there were, you know, other people in other industries and we would be like, did you see that guy in the hallway? Or, you know, like you have all of these jokes and it's, it's like going to school or going to summer camp and it is really bonding. Um, and I really miss that, you know, it is now back to just like me in a room. And when we do our remote writer's room, everybody's in different situations, um, in, in their different spaces, there's kids in the background, there's a lot of distractions and then the signals never quite <laughs> so good. And so it, it is a lot of this, like, you go ahead, no, you go ahead. And, and then everybody starts talking at once and then it's no, you go ahead, no, you go ahead. So it's, you know, all of the frustrations of technology. You know, it's great for you that you had nothing that was about to debut, that you're in the sort of the part of the creative process where you might have decided to take time by yourself to work on big ideas. Uh, my friends who are writers sometimes joke that actually the world is just sort of resorted to their best case scenario all the time. Yes. Um, exactly. <laughs> a lot of introversion. Um, but you're also part of a, a writing community. And I'm curious how this might impact, if you have any thoughts about how this might impact um, creative projects at large that would have debuted this spring. Well, I mean, I think it's uh, it's something I think about a lot because I have a lot of friends who are filmmakers that would have had a film, perhaps even their debut film premiere at a film festival. And I think... Um, you know, of course, production is going to be affected and pushed. Um, uh, you know, we had a bunch of scouting trips uh, for various projects that are, uh, you know, now on the back burner. Um, but I do, I think the most devastating thing are for the people who have projects that were ready to be released into the world because they've been working so hard for many, many years on a film. And, uh, you know, as a filmmaker who... I just had my film premiere at Sundance in 2019 and it meant so much to how the world was, how the, how the film was introduced to the world, you know, to be able to have that Sundance premiere, to have 1,200, 1,300 people in a room for the premiere, the energy of that, you can't replicate that. And, um, you know, people who had potential theatrical releases that are now canceled, um, the studios are trying to figure out if it's worth it to hold the film and release it once this is all over or what's you know happening more and more is that they're just releasing it digitally. So I think it's um it's really hard for the filmmakers and I think it's also really scary for the state of uh you know movie theaters particularly the independent small art house theaters that are um really struggling. You know Lulu you spoke to the feeling that comes with gathering around the premiere, being in person for the big debut. Um, is there anything that comes close to replicating that? I don't think so. I mean, I guess we're going to find out because uh, I know several films um, that were made by friends who are doing like digital premieres. And uh, we just did one with Amazon for a film where they sent us dinner uh, and then gave us the link to the film to watch that particular night. So we got, you know, a three-course meal delivered to our house with a bottle of wine and the link to the film to watch it. But, you know, at the end of the Wait, day... Wait, what, what was that like? What was that experience <laughs> like? Other than novel, a little weird. 
Um, y- you know, it was really, it was nice. It was like a, you know, Friday night movie and uh, to have like um, this meal that we, uh, we, you know, we, we didn't choose it. We, they just said, are you allergic to anything? And it was just, we'd been cooking for ourselves like for the last two weeks. So it was nice to get something new uh, and different. And so that was a nice surprise. Did, did you have the feeling that you were watching it with other people at the same time? No. That's the thing that you cannot replicate because at the end of the day, when you're watching it at home, you can still hit pause to go to the bathroom. You can um, control the condition under which you're watching it. You're not hearing the collective gasp, the collective laughter, the collective tears. And for me, I remember so distinctly the first time we screened uh, the film you know, publicly was at the premiere um, at Sundance. And it was at the Eccles Theater, which is like really like a student auditorium. So it has all these weird echoes and stuff, but it's, you know, kind of a infamous experience of that, that theater. And so you really, really, the room resonates and I didn't want to stay for it. I was so nervous that I wanted to leave. And I, and um, Kim Yutani, the head of the festival said, you have to stay. And um, it, it's, it's, and experience this, you know? So I did. And I remember like the first 10 minutes when the room laughed, it was this, like, I visibly like felt, or I, um, viscerally felt this sense of relief because the whole room just laughed and there was this lightness, even though it's such a dark subject matter. And I knew that it was going to be okay. And you just can't replicate that at home. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. How do you think that this period of our lives is going to change your work? Well, it's already changing a lot of things because any speech that I wrote before all of this happened that I was going to do a keynote on or a TED Talk on, I have to reevaluate, you know, because um, the context the importance, you know, of what I'm talking about has shifted. And so I have to reevaluate what things I want to talk about. And I'm not, and I don't know the answer to that yet. 
Um, but it's also affected like the kind of stories I want to tell for sure. Like my priorities in my life have become focused in a different way. When you sort of uh, downsize, right? Everything you, you, you kind of really have to think about what is important in your life. Let's talk about the farewell just a couple of minutes, Lulu. Uh, it was one of my very favorite movies last year. And uh, it did such a such an elegant job at speaking to two cultures at once. Um, and now we're going through a period in the U.S. where Chinese Americans are under a lot more pressure and more hate is being directed toward them than previously. And I'm curious if it makes you think differently about the work that you created last year. It's underscored the importance of what I was trying to explore because I'm experiencing it now on a much greater scale, right? So here in America, we talk a lot about the hate um, for Chinese Americans and because people are ignorant, uh, they clump everyone together. So it's more Asian Americans. Uh, so they might see somebody Japanese or Korean and just think that they're Chinese. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of ignorance, but what I also experience that maybe not everybody is, um, experiencing in America is that it goes the other way too, right? Which is that a lot of Chinese are hating Americans because the narrative that they're being fed is that, uh, Americans brought the disease over there. Uh, and now in Hong Kong, you know, they've really contained the disease, but people returning from abroad, um, students, et cetera, from Europe, from America coming back are bringing the disease, the virus back in. And so they're having a second wave of it. Um, and so it's, again, it's, um, it's this just sort of pointing fingers back and forth. And uh, it's a lot of it has to do with media and how they're forming the narrative for their citizens. Um, and it's honestly creating a lot of divides within my family because I have family in America, I have family in China, and based on the news that they're hearing, the stories that they're hearing, they're going to direct their anger in a different place. And as the person, once again, in the middle, who's trying to just bring peace and say, hey, guys, like with all of these, so many people dying in the world, are we really going to sit here and fight over whose fault it is? Because if, you know, if, if one of us, if somebody got sick and, um, and they were no longer here, is that the last memory that you want to have that you spent, you know, on uh, some kind of video chat arguing about who's which nation's fault this all is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very relevant. And I think more than ever, it's about a global community coming together. Well, we'll keep reading you. Thank you so much for taking the time with us, Lulu. Thank you. That was Lulu Wong. She wrote and directed The Farewell. If you're looking for a good quarantine film and you haven't watched it yet, or even if you have, I highly recommend watching it. Special thanks this week to Madison Schaefer for producing this bonus episode. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. Keep your distance, but stay social. See you on Monday.